Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we are talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. And today we should change the name of our podcast to Two Pastors Take a Run. <laughs> I was thinking about podcast. this last night, but so um, we used to, when we first met 10 plus years ago, we used to run. We did. And talk about our sermons, and then... I got pregnant with our youngest, who is now three. So four years ago, I stopped running for a season, and then we have not been running ever since. I do think it's funny. Last night, I was wondering how long, if we would mention it on the podcast, on the podcast, which, of course, and then how long it would take. And I think it's really funny. <laughs> it was. It wasn't even two seconds before. Anyway, we're very. Um, proud of ourselves which Listen, is a little pathetic but that's all right i'm feeling good about running today so no, i'm glad we were saying on the run it's like a time machine like we're we're yeah. four years younger in yeah. an instant because because of that so it was good um so you uh, other than the run <laughs> yeah. what, what is astonishing you well i'm astonished by this um essay that appeared in my inbox uh, last week. It's entitled Donald Trump's Presidency and False Prophecy. Um, it's written by William D. Ortega. He is a church historian out of the Pentecostal charismatic tradition. Uh, this essay was published by the NUMA Review, which is mm -hmm. a Pentecostal charismatic journal for uh, church leaders in that uh, tradition. And uh, it is astonishing because uh, Diotega, D. Ortega uh, takes a look at false prophecy throughout church history. And he concludes that most of the time when there is false prophecy, it usually begins with someone getting some clear, true word from God, but it gets infused with, and what gets wrapped around it is the prophet's own subconscious fears, desires, etc. And so he just takes a walk through some movements throughout history and points out how, you know, there have been some false prophecies. And then he takes a look at the prophecies around Donald Trump. And for those who are not... Um, I was going to say, you need to define them because one of the things that is problematic about the Presbyterian Church is we tend to, for all of our public policy statements about ecumenism, they really only apply to other mainline mm -hmm. denominations. And we tend to function as though... God is not doing anything outside the bounds yes. of the Presbyterian Church, USA. And the Peace USA has, shall we say, a POV, which I tend to actually mm -hmm. agree with when it comes to political um, policy, public policies. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it makes it really difficult to be in dialogue or to be edifying to the larger body of Christ when we don't read um we don't read theologians that come from outside of 
the mainline Protestant traditions. I mean, we'll make some exceptions for some mm-hmm, Catholics. Mm-hmm. And and so people don't understand there's real hand-wringing among white Presbyterians about how in the world could this have happened. Black Presbyterians tend to know white people mm. better than white Presbyterians. <laughs> so understand exactly how it happened. Yes. But I think, you know, so many white Presbyterians don't, they're so plugged in and so well served by mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the current um, uh, institutions that they do not recognize um, other institutions as actually being served by the Lord and serving the Lord and having truth that would be edifying to our part of the body and don't understand how people who sincerely love Jesus could be susceptible to um the ideology because we never recognize I mean most Presbyterians functionally exist as if the Holy Spirit were yes. a concept and yes. not a reality and we forget that there's a portion of the body of Christ that believes and I would say not just believes but experiences experiences walks in uh, the reality that these gifts are in operation and so and it's not uh, for them it's not simply uh, the, the clergy and leaders that these gifts are available to everyone who believes who is wait, indwelt wait, by the wait, Holy wait. Spirit. It's almost like the, I feel like I learned a term about this in seminary. Mm, I feel like maybe it had something to do with the Reformation. Like, ah, oh, help me, help me. Something, something like, like the like priesthood. The priesthood of of all, all. believers. A L L. All. all yes. Wow. Okay. Cool. So they still believe in so that. So they still believe in that. Wow. That anyone who is. A believer in Jesus is indwelt by the Spirit and so is gifted by the Spirit. And one of those gifts is prophecy that at any time the Holy Spirit could choose whether you are an official church leader or not to speak to the body. And I think that makes us so uncomfortable and it's just important to look at that because immediately if there is such a thing as a typical Presbyterian, then Mm. the typical Presbyterian would say, well... That's just dangerous. That's so so dangerous. And I would just and that's want to what point many out, people in the Reformation said. Correct. The, the Reformation concluded that wait a minute, no, this gift um, ended with the apostles mm-hmm. because for many uh, coming out of the Reformation, the gift of prophecy was only about um, completing the canon of Scripture. And once the canon was complete. They said that gift went away. But here, but here's what I want to say. We are so uncomfortable with the idea of God directly interacting with individuals through um, aesthetic gifts, through mm-hmm. charismatic gifts, through prophecy. And we all we can look at is how that might be exploited or how it might yes. be dangerous. But I would just point out mm-hmm. that we have no trouble putting our trust in institutions and putting our trust in authority. And we expect God to reveal and bless the church and, and through those um, venues. And we also are not stupid Presbyterians, many things stupid is generally not one of them. And so we all know, we all know that institutions and authority can also become incredibly dangerous and can incredibly ripe for exploitation by bad actors. But we just accept that Mm -hmm. risk. Mm -hmm. And I just Mm -hmm. think it's funny that we Mm -hmm. won't accept that risk when it shows up in a different way that the Holy Spirit blesses the church. Yes. Um, But we but we will with the institutions or the pathways that are familiar to us. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I just think that's worth 
looking at? I mean, to the point of the article that you're about to talk about, can these gifts of prophecy, these peripheral prophets who have no institutional authority or backing or whatever, can they be exploited? Of course. But can the uh, central prophets, can the institutions and authorities and, you know, rightfully ordained, can those folks be become dangerous and um, used and exploited? Of course. Absolutely. So, I mean, I just think that we just need to acknowledge the fact that our discomfort says more about our idolatry mm. than it does about um, how God chooses to work in the world. Like, so... So there. Oh, wait, can I just say one more yes, thing? Go ahead. So this article is really interesting, but I just think it's really important for people who are listening to know that because a lot of people wouldn't know mm -hmm. if you're not familiar with how charismatic or Pentecostal churches or when you if you get to that part of the if you're flipping channels and you get to like um, you know uh, Christian television and you just skip right past it and you don't know you wouldn't know that there are our whole movements of people who follow certain teachers certain preachers certain yes. prophets and then that they just have a, a big platform and they have a lot of authority and they have a lot of influence and so they were talking about trump and talking about him in specific ways that were very powerful and very formative to a lot of believers because you know because these were people who had taught them who Jesus was and they had seen the Lord mm -hmm. move powerfully through their mm -hmm. ministries mm -hmm. in other venues. So they mm -hmm. just trusted that this yes. was so. Yes. And people have been asking, how is it that conservative white evangelicals could give such support to someone who is clearly immoral? Um, at the, you know, when years ago, they were very clear in their stand um, on Bill Clinton. So how, how, mm -hmm. how could they support Trump and not Bill Clinton? So um, William D. Ortega seeks to get at that. And he cites Mark Taylor, who is a prophet, a retired uh, firefighter, I believe, out of Pennsylvania. And many years ago, he had a series of visions. And one of them was that Trump would become president and a lot of other things, right? And uh, there was a Christian writer who got with Mark and they collected all of these visions and then gathered some uh, evangelical pastors to support uh, the prophecy to convince them that this is uh, a move of God, that God was calling, God was moving in such a way that Donald Trump would be the next president and that Christians should support. And so uh, these leaders got on board and along with them, their congregations. And William D. Ortega in this article begins to take a look at all of these prophecies and concludes that Yes, this Mark Taylor heard something correctly. He heard that Donald Trump would be the next president. He got that right. But wrapped around that truth was a lot of his own um, fear and desire in terms of his own political views. And uh, so D. Ortega just names those and concludes that 
much of the prophecy, and this is um, astonishing because he is in their camp. He, for the most part, agrees with them, but he says that most of these prophecies around Trump are demonically inspired. And he goes to, um, he points out Peter, the apostle Peter. He says, look, Peter is the same person who, on the one hand, rightly said, confess Jesus, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus says, you know what? Flesh and blood did not reveal that to Mm -hmm. you. It's my father. And then later on, when Jesus says, I'm going to the cross, Peter says, no, that mustn't happen to you. What? It's not and, even later on. It's like two verses yeah, later. Yeah, right? it's, it's not, <laughs> it's not right? like it was in a different season of life. Or... And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the article puts these prophecies about Trump in that light, that this guy, Mark Taylor, heard something true many years before others, that Trump would be the next president. But uh, this uncritical support of, of Trump, uh, this ignoring of his meanness, his his boasting, uh, even some of his policies, uh, the article says, no, Christians need to call that out and, and, and need, well, conservative evangelicals need to call that out and repent for the uncritical support. Well, and I think the problem is not that people would say that you know, uh, by prophecy, I've learned that Trump would become president. The problem is when people say that Trump is the Lord's anointed or that God, you know, has chosen and ordained Trump to create a country that is more like the kingdom of God. I mean, the problem is calling someone, I mean, a Messiah who isn't. And the problem is believers not having an understanding of the way of Jesus enough to know that just because someone calls on the name of Jesus, that doesn't mean that they believe in the way of Jesus. And I would just say, I mean, Peter's a great example, but even but even deeper than that, I mean, there's a whole, once you start paying attention, I mean, we have the prophets in the Hebrew Bible and we think like, well, here are the prophets are Ezekiel and the prophets are Isaiah and the prophets are Jeremiah, but we don't understand that they were the outliers, yes. that the real prophets they were, were court prophets. Hananiah mm-hmm. and, you know, the ones whose names we don't often hear. And they were the ones who also... They knew something true from the Lord. So they knew that that Israel was the chosen people. They right. knew mm-hmm. that God, you know, had a special plan for Israel that would not be deterred. But but I mean, much like um Mark Taylor, they had their own um vested interests mm-hmm. and their own mm-hmm. fears and, and that then allowed them to warp the truth that they received to, you know, coincide with the needs of the empire. I mean, forever, it is always a struggle between the kingdom of God and the empire, Mm -hmm. whether that empire is Babylon or Rome or, or Israel or the United States of Mm -hmm. America, that when we put um, imperial power over and against the way of Jesus, the way of the Lord, the way of, um, you know, lifting the grand reversal, lifting up mm. the lowly, that, and, and when we call crushing the lowly righteousness, then we've just betrayed that we don't love God. We love our safety, our power, our comfort, and we love what we think that God can give us and that God is giving us, which, you know, makes the enemy of our souls very happy. Mm. Um, so, 
I, I mean, this is all, if we're really students of scripture, then we start to see like, oh, this isn't new. There's nothing new under the sun. That's right. Um, this is a pattern that has ever been and ever will be until the full redemption of the world. And we should be able to recognize it and not like be chicken little and also not think that we're any better than people who are currently um, being led astray. Like if it's not us, it could be. So if you have truth. And in some way we're probably led astray in a different way. Well, I mean, yes, yes, of course. I mean, of course we are. And so if we have any truth, it's because God has graciously revealed Mm -hmm. that truth to us. And it's not so that we can become proud of ourselves or feel superior. It's so that we can bless, you know, the other, our brothers and sisters and, you know, those who are outside the body of Christ. And yeah, well, this article hits two important places for me. Number one, my concern about people who do not yet believe. I'm trying to see all of this in light of folks who are outside the church, looking at the church, going, well, scratching their heads, going, well, how could they? Um, And I can understand why young people, not just young people, anyone who doesn't believe would turn away from the gospel because they see evangelicals uncritically supporting this president and uh, and I, I I'm so grateful for this um, essay uh, in that regard but also um, for a long time I've believed that it's it's dangerous and that maybe that's too strong but it's a bit dangerous for Christians to be members of political parties because those parties, it seems to me, always seek to co-opt your faith. That is, to help you see or make you see how your group is completely right and the other group is completely wrong. And what I appreciate about this essay is that the author is being salt and light to his own camp. If you are a believer and a Democrat, if you are a believer and a Republican, part of your responsibility, your calling as a follower of Jesus is to turn the gospel onto your group, not simply have a critical eye on the other group, but to say, okay, how is my group not following Jesus? How are our ways not in ways not in line with the ways of Jesus. And that's what this essay does. And I really, I deeply appreciate, um, even though we we probably would not vote the same way, but I I could hang out with this guy just, just for that reason. Well, and I just think it's important to recognize that, I mean, you can't just say, well, the people who, you know, the people who support this political leader are just garbage like they're just stupid and wrong and the way they think about god is you know empty and demonic i mean i mean you can do that but not if you actually want reconciliation and Mm -hmm. not if you actually are hoping for for healing Mm -hmm. and the goodness of the lord to be in the land of the living so i think being able to recognize you know part of this current moment grows out of our deep divide and deep alienation that is based on just dis 
disrespect and despising mm. one another, right? So not everything. I mean, not it's, and I mean, I have a friend who who likes to really point out that a lot of progressive white people just want to say, oh, it was all hillbilly elegy people who voted for Trump, and that's not true. There are yeah. a lot of people who are not charismatic, who are not evangelical, who are not don't have any idea who the prophets named in this article are who voted for Trump purely economics mm-hmm. that was the bottom line mm-hmm. so but this is conversation is not about that is to say right. there there are I, I think whole camps of really devout people who who really know the Lord and experience the God in God in supernatural and charismatic ways who have been led astray by some false teaching yeah. and in order to bring that light, you can't just say, well, everything you've ever experienced is stupid and a lie. You have to be able to say, no, like find within the biblical narrative and within the goodness um, and presence of God in your own tradition, how, how, you know, we've gone off the path and we get back on. And I mean, there's such great biblical precedent for that. I mean, looking at like in the beginning of the book of Revelation and the seven, the letters to the seven churches. I mean, these are all faithful churches. These are all people who are risking death to worship Jesus. And yet the risen Lord has critical words to say to almost all of them. And I think we just see faith as this all or nothing black and white proposition that if you believe you're good and everything you want and everything you believe in is right and agreeable to God, and if you don't believe you're bad and everything you think and everything you want is, you know, disagreeable to God or hateful in God's eyes, and that's not true. You can know the Lord, love the Lord, and be loved by the Lord and still be deeply, tragically wrong Mm -hmm. um and that's one reason the body of christ needs the whole body of christ well and one of the reasons i just love the apostle paul is it seems that no matter what controversy comes up in the church and even when he has a point of view that's more on one side than another he fights for church unity Mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting though i just read an article i and i don't even I'm not familiar with the name of the person who wrote it, but they were denouncing, um, who's the guy, um, now I'm going to blank on his name completely. Um, you're going to have to edit this out because I can't think of his name. That's <laughs> Stop it. I don't, I don't normally read him, but Max Licato. Oh, yes. Max Licato. Okay just went on so this woman jen hatmaker mm-hmm. who is i'm um, a very um influential christian author is she the woman who's recently published a book on biblical womanhood and manhood no no no, 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 no. That? that's okay. that you might be thinking of rachel hilda evans but no um okay anyway, go ahead. jen hatmaker um came came up in the evangelical tr- um church and then it's fairly recently, like within the last two or three years, sort of um, experienced a conversion of theology around human sexuality. And as a result of saying, you know, I no longer believe that it's a sin to be gay and I want gay people to know the full acceptance and love of, you know, the church community and that they're already beloved by God. And as a result of that, she, you know, was canceled by evangelical um, Christian culture and then has sort of gone through a dark night of the soul and a reawakening and is kind of trying to... um, you know, articulate her own experience of who God is and create a space um, that um, 
is more evangelical than typical mainline churches and more anyway. But yeah. it, she has a podcast called For the Love, which is, I mean, pretty good. But one thing that's interesting in this season is she is trying to reach out to a more traditional evangelical conservative thinkers and invite them onto her podcast and and have conversations about what they hold in common. And mm. she's saying you know, some people are really frustrated with her and saying like, by having a conversation with Max Lucado, you are betraying me because you said that you were creating a space of welcome for say LGBTQ individuals. And now you're talking to someone who doesn't hold that theology. And what does that mean? And she's saying, but when I was undergoing my own conversion, there were people in the progressive theological world who were willing to be in conversation with me. They didn't just cancel me. They were willing to be in conversation with me. They were willing to name and recognize what was good in me. They were willing to be in relationship with me, even though that meant that both of us were risking change. And I want to do that. I want and to say, you know, I can have a conversation with Max Lucado and say, we disagree about this issue and it matters. And yet we can see that there is so much that is good and powerful and lovely in one another's ministry. But it was just interesting. And I, I, I have not listened to the episode, but Max Lucado came on and they acknowledged apparently, you know, we disagree on some things that matter, but the call is to church unity and unity, unity, yeah. unity. And and then, you know, this article that I was reading was basically saying, you know, heresy and false preacher. This is a false prophet. And this is a, and it's, so it's just a really interesting yeah. thing. Um, so there's this, um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of that that place in the Gospels where Jesus is praying before the uh, uh for his crucifixion, and he prays to the Father that the church may be one, that they may be one as we are one. And so it's just got to be a work of the enemy to divide us to such a degree that if we have a conversation, that if we're in relationship with someone that mm-hmm. we disagree with, that that we somehow we're now tainted and we need to be canceled. Well, and, that's a sin. I yeah. mean, it's literally calling yeah. that a sin. And so to be able to say, if I can't be in a conversation with someone who proclaims that Jesus Christ is Lord and has died and is risen. And if that's not enough theological conversation to have ground to have a conversation that acknowledges difference and having that conversation is a sin, then I don't understand how anyone could actually be evangelical, like could actually be sharing the way in the life. Because the truth is, you know, as comfortable as it might be to sort of believe that well somehow everybody's right i mean the reality is i i don't believe that i do believe that there is truth and so what i don't know is if i have it right and so what i want is to is to be in relationship with people who are sincerely seeking to follow the lord and those who are not but in when i'm in relationship with people who are sincerely seeking to follow the lord i want us to be able to have real hard dialogue about truth so that we can bless one another right because if we're walking in error we should want to know it right so that we can repent and and be restored and 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 be redeemed right and, and we also can't... that the truth that we hold the truth that we genuinely have can spread i mean how how do Correct. we expect to share the gospel if we're only with people who believe exactly what we believe. No, I mean, I, I, but I think that's the huge, I mean, I think that is the huge way that cancel culture 
has invaded the church. And we basically want to, you know, vet people at the yes. door mm -hmm. before we will allow them into our communities or before we will extend the right hand of fellowship to them. And then basically what we're saying is I'm not in relationship with you because I believe in the risen Lord and I've been called to love and serve and fellowship, we're saying, oh, no, I'm in a relationship with you because you're right and I'm right, and together I believe in our rightness. Instead mm -hmm. of saying, I believe in the power of the risen Christ in between us, binding us together. So anyway, that's a long way from your article. Well, but it, it's still connected to the article. But anyway, that's, that's what's astonishing me, this um, surprising article from someone uh, in the um, evangelical camp saying, you know, Let's look at these prophecies and um, understand that repentance is in order. Well, I just think conversations like this are going to be really important to have more and more because uh, this upcoming election season, as everybody is saying, is going to be even more intense and even more divisive. And I think we're going to continue to have to work out what it means to be first a follower of Jesus Christ and then how do we how are we called to participate in the political process not to say that all choices are equally are equal because they're not um, and and how do we participate in the political process in a way that um, we are lifting up the lowly and seeking the rights of the widow and the orphan and the oppressed and also not demonizing the enemies of the widows and the orphans and the oppressed but really taking a posture that you know is espousing a gospel that's so beautiful that it draws people to wow. it and that is going to be a real challenge um so. yeah well in in light of um mlk day yesterday you know king was very clear that the civil rights movement was not only about black people and um segregation but it was also about helping our white brothers and sisters get free from hatred and prejudice. And well, yeah, I mean, white supremacy is poison. White yes. supremacy is death to everyone, yes. even the people who, by the cultural values, are are profiting from it. I mean, those are not, that's yeah. not real goodness at all. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that's true. I was listening to an interview with Ruby Sales, and she was saying, I am longing, as an African-American woman, I am longing for a theology of whiteness that is whole and holy and is not defined by not black right mm. i mean and that and that we need to see a theology of whiteness that is not destructive that is constructive and so who's going to do that work and i think yeah i mean that makes sense white people need to know how to define their whiteness in a way that isn't anti-god or anti-black right and there needs to be a way yeah. to say it's neither shame nor pride correct there yeah. needs to be a way of loving being white that isn't about hating people who are not white and loving i mean and i or about self-hatred or, right? self or, or right. guilt i should say correct. guilt that's and probably think, a better word and guilt. i think a lot of white people just feel like there's no way to talk about whiteness that isn't inherently supremacist because mm -hmm. white identity has been hijacked by white supremacy and then white identity other than that people just think like well white is the default white is normal so like people think i mean white people all the time will will recognize and this is what i think is so interesting about the work of building healthy and holy multi-ethnic churches is white people we don't understand that we have a culture 
right? Like we can look clearly and see black culture, we can see Hispanic culture, but we don't see our own culture because we just, it gets reflected back to us in every everywhere Mm -hmm. so we don't see it as culture we see it as normal normal we see it as just life we see it as like the standard so since we don't understand that we have a culture then we can't understand that in order to make a multi-ethnic community it needs to be multicultural which means it can't just be quote normal as we expect it or right as we experience rightness but like people don't I mean like they just mind blown people don't think they white people don't think they have a culture so they can't critically reflect on how can i compromise my culture and how can i say i do have a culture and my culture is not necessarily even evil or bad but there might be something that is more holy than preserving my culture which is seeking unity within the body of christ but if you don't know you have a culture if you just think it's right like this is just decent and in order and like the number of articles i read Hmm. like people cannot talk about presbyterian worship by which you read white middle class culture but you label it presbyterian and you just you describe it as decent and in order and righteous and yeah. people talking about singing hymns and like you can't worship God without singing hymns because the good theology I just want to vomit and nod in my mouth at the amount of just obnoxious privilege there it's so gross it's so gross and then people wonder like I don't know why don't they come to our church because okay done i'm done that is a rant <laughs> that was a lovely rant I... <laughs> and, um, anyway i, I so what is what, a, what is astonishing you <laughs> <laughs> um actually i um a, a, a friend of mine um who is is part of the grove community who does a lot of our social media and especially our instagram feed and she texted me yesterday and was like you know you should go and look back at the church's Instagram feed, which is the Grove Charlotte, if anyone would like to check it back, and go look back through the years. Like, just look, go back as far as you can go and huh. look forward. And there's just so many images that I had forgotten, so many moments that I had forgotten, so many, you look at those pictures and see answered prayers and see moments. Anyway, but the thing that I was really astonished by, and particularly... We have a lot of images just because the person who contributes the most has certain ministries that she's most involved in. And one of them is our after school ministry and and also the community meal. Um, And there are just people that were a part of the community, especially kids who are part of the after school community or people who are really faithful in the community meal. And you had the season of knowing them and then... And then for lots of reasons, especially because our neighbors tend to be really economically disadvantaged, they're just gone. Um, So get evicted, have to move for a job, car breaks down, whatever. You just have this moment with people and then they're gone. And I don't mean dead. I just mean not Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. our community anymore. And I just was astonished at the beauty of the community. And I was also astonished at just, you know, when you get in the grind of things, you just can easily forget what, um, like, to borrow a word, like the kairos of it all, that, like, mm-hmm. you don't have all the time in the world, that you have this season, that you have this opportunity to take a certain way of relating to people and 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 
I don't know, but it just was really poignant and powerful and both encouraging and sobering to see how many people have passed through through the doors, through the halls, and wonder at the end of the day, what did they experience in our community? And did they experience the love of God when their kids were part of the after-school program, when they were part of the after-school program, when they showed up at the community meal? Like, and just, I mean, we've been, it's funny, we've been talking about sort of the power of the Holy Spirit and recognizing that there's a certain amount of ministry that, and this isn't wrong, I mean, it's just servanthood. I mean, there's a certain amount of just grunt work and sweat equity that you need to feel like you're just not too good to put in and that is not... Um, it, you know, you just you need to do it. You want to delight in doing it, but also just to recognize that, I mean, it's just a meal. It's just babysitting. It's just it's just a task. If if it's not really transformed and transfigured by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, and that what we really the reason we do all these things is to have an opportunity to have a relationship with people and 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 adopt a certain posture towards them, especially people living in a part of our city who don't often get approached as if your life is sacred. It is a privilege and an honor to know you and to serve you. And I see just so much, um, so much goodness. I take delight in this relationship mm. that you're not a problem to be solved, that you you know, just to be able to really be in relationship with people as though it is true that Jesus is risen and that the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that spirit lives in us and Anyway, so I just, um, it was really, it, it was really astonishing to look back at all of those moments and, and just, you know, in my humanness, just knowing that that is all because of the grace of God and the glory of God and that, and, and wanting to be really aware that what we're doing is sacred work and what we're doing is stupid unless the Holy Spirit mm. is still yes. showing up in really powerful concrete ways and giving us knowledge that we couldn't have on our own and and pouring love into a community that would not naturally exist and anyway so that I'm was curious as you looked at the um, the Instagram feed um, did the pictures look different were the people different or you just noticed um, People who are no longer there at the Grove. I mean, uh, we started our Instagram account at a particular moment in the development of the church, and and as I said before, like the the ministries that often get highlighted tend to be outreach ministries. So mm-hmm. um, the church has changed really dramatically. And I mean, what's interesting is you see people who are now par- participating, leaders and members um, and elders in the community, but you see like the outreach ministries whereby they first showed up. Right. And so that's just a really interesting thing. And, and also just to say, like, I I mean, I think I've said this before, but people, I mean, it's to your earlier point about trust and people, I mean, people were a part of ministries at the Grove for years before they took a step 
into wanting to be in spiritual relationship with our community. Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, and most of the people who are part of our, I, I want, I aspire to be a disciple making community. I mean, who knows, you know, who knows where people were in their faith when they showed up or how much, but I mean, I can't count very many people who have walked into the Grove Sanctuary on a Sunday morning and said, I don't know who this Jesus is, or I don't believe in Jesus, but I'm here anyway. I, I don't, mm. not as many as I would hope, right? Sure. But I mean, who knows, really? Um, but a lot of people were drawn by God to this community. They already knew the Lord. They did not have a church community. They spent a long time being part of the outreach ministries and not just being served by them, but serving in them as well before they thought, okay, I might be able to be part of the spiritual community here. And I mean, and to be clear, we were praying for that, right? Like we were saying, you know, those of us who were sort of historic members of the community that we felt called that God was calling us to be a particular kind of church. And we, and the, just the, the vision of what that would look like was so beautiful, but we needed, we needed co-laborers, right? We needed people who were not yet here to help us become the church that we were called to be. We did not have it in us to be the thing that God was calling us to be. And not all of that was going to have some of that was going to be through personal spiritual transformation for sure. But some of it was just, we needed people who weren't there yet. And so God, led those people in, but it took a long time of just trusting the Lord and doing what we could do and adopting a posture of, you know, gratitude and humility and vulnerability and recognizing that we couldn't make this happen. We couldn't manufacture it. So all we could do was trust God and be as faithful as we could be, right? Like not let what we couldn't control become our excuse for not doing what we could control that's so, good anyway. yeah, yeah so what are you thinking about <laughs> <laughs> nothing everything um i am i'm bad about starting a book and getting kind of in and then i'll put it down and flip to another book oh yes so i do that all the time i really need to um fix that but last week i was talking about um reading one of um brian zan's books the beauty beauty will save the world um and then just this morning, I started reading a second of his book called Postcards from Babylon. And um, I just, I mean, it's just connects to our early conversation, just a lot about thinking about what does it mean to become aware of how much of your understanding of Jesus has been shaped by the culture in which you were introduced to Jesus, right? And how much of your understanding of what it means to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ has been influenced by the cultural understanding of what it means to be a good citizen. And And that's hard for people to do that work because there's a fear that bubbles up that says, if I examine this, I might lose my faith. Because if my faith is really tied to the culture, if my faith is really tied to my citizenship, my, my, my national citizenship, then um, that foundation is really shaking. If I, if I lose that, I might lose my faith. And so a lot of, a lot of 
people. I don't think people don't are afraid they're going to lose their faith. I think they're afraid they're going to lose their ability to participate and to be a good citizen, right? Like I think people who really know hmm. on some level, if they're really drawn mm-hmm. to go deeper in looking at the gospel and if they're really drawn to say, I want to examine my own biases and I want to examine my own prejudices and mm-hmm. I want to look for where you know there are idols mm-hmm. in my the sanctuary of my heart because there are because there are i think people recognize that jesus is dangerous Mm. and that jesus might call them to give up something they don't want to give up or do something that might put them in danger i mean i just think you know um i think if you're you know if you're not examining it you might be in danger of losing your faith but i think Mm. if you do examine it and really surrender to that the danger is you're going to you're going to lose your citizenship first. And I, I mean, when he just was doing a lot of talking I um, about Jesus as the way, which is a metaphor that I use a lot, which is interesting to me because one of the verses that always really tripped me up, and it wasn't the verse itself, it was the way people used the verse, was from John, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And um, that is a Jesus saying, one of the I am sayings. And what was always problematic for me coming up and in seminary was not the verse itself, but the way that people would say, what this means is, you know, if you don't uh, think these things and pray this specific prayer, you will be burning in hell for all eternity, right? That that's what the way meant. It was the way, the only way, which is funny that that word only is not in there, but the only way to get to heaven. And I really struggled with what that what that meant and often how that verse and the understanding of evangelism and conversion that was wrapped around it was used to justify condoning injustice, right? Like it was that understanding of I'm the way, the truth, and the life that allowed people to say that the transatlantic slave trade was actually good because all of the human cargo on the ship, whether they liked it or not, was baptized. And so, yeah, they might have died on the Middle Passage, and yeah, their life might have been hell on earth, but they were saved because they were given the way of Jesus to heaven. And so really people could feel like they were being yeah, yeah, well, for me, that goes back to how we began with that article, that you can yeah. have a kernel of absolute pure truth, and then what you wrap around it really distorts it. And so, you know, and I think Jesus, there, there is a pointing to uh, Jesus as Savior, um, uh, you know, no one comes to the Father except through me. I, I get that. And you can take that truth and use it in a way that is destructive, like I mean, you just mentioned. The, the, plain, the plain sense of the way is a, the way of living. A way of The going. way of confronting yeah. evil. The mm-hmm. way that you posture yourself towards your enemies and towards your biological family. And, the, you know, and I think it's interesting that because we've wrapped this, I think, false evangelical theology around it, convenient mm-hmm. evangelical theology about it, we've allowed ourselves then to say, as long as we've prayed this prayer... All of the ways of Jesus that were laid out on the Sermon on the Mount become optional for us, right? In in such a way so that we can uh, we can say, um, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, but if someone crosses the border, I feel totally justified in putting their children in cages. Like, right, because A is... And, yeah. and the same Jesus that I am declaring faith in said, 
Well, if, if you consider someone your enemy, love your enemy, mm-hmm. right? Bless those who persecute mm-hmm. you. And Sell all you have and give it to the poor, right. which yes. I don't think means put them in cages yes. that then you get a profit off yes. of on the stock market. But, so, but you're, you're pointing to the, the, the reality that we can have a, a right belief and not a right way of living. Well, I'm just saying the way we've used that verse mm-hmm. is we've said that that verse, the way means Jesus is the exclusive access to God. Mm-hmm. And the only way to access Jesus is by this theological move in your head. Mm-hmm. And we've mm-hmm. said that's what the may, the way means. Mm-hmm. And so what it becomes is, you know, if I do something wrong, it doesn't matter, right? Like because not I only- believe right. Because I believe, right, and so mm-hmm. because I believe that, and and I do believe this, I do believe that in the cross, Jesus has broken the power of sin and broken the power of death, and I do believe that because of what Jesus has done, mm-hmm. we have eternal life with God. I believe these things. I believe the kingdom of God is among us, and I believe that kingdom is eternal, and I believe you know, I believe in a personal relationship. And because you believe that, you're called to walk in a particular way, a path, a way that follows, if you if you want to make it literal, a, a way, a path that actually follows behind Jesus. You Correct. walk the way he walks, not just right believing, but you're living out a life that is patterned after Jesus. Right. And yes. that's not earning salvation. Correct. That's saying, I believe that Jesus is the way to yes. live live. And so I'm going to live that way because I believe in it. Right. And I just think that's such a helpful way of saying like, I don't, I mean, I don't not, I'm not going to put myself in the judgment seat of saying for anybody else, this is how you're going to live this out in your particular life. But I am going to say that you don't believe in Jesus if you don't believe in living according to his patterns. And Jesus had very particular things to say about how we exist in society. And so we all have to wrestle with what that looks like. And I think progressives and conservatives at at in their in a purest form just really do have different understandings of how to accomplish the most good for the most number of people. And so there's nothing inherently Christian about being a Democrat or about being a Republican, and there's nothing inherently unchristian about being a Democrat or being a Republican, because if what we're trying to do is bring the most good to the most amount of people, and and even beyond that, to pay particular regard for the people for whom the God of Jesus, the God of creation, the God of the Hebrews has always singled out, which is who? The widow, the orphan, the alien. Like Mm -hmm. these are the people that God has always said, I am the God of the widow. I am the God of the orphan. I am the God of the alien, which is language to say who is who is powerless in biblical societies, widows, orphans, strangers, right? So when God says, I am the God of the widow, the orphan, and the alien or the stranger, God is saying, I am the God of the powerless. And basically, I am the God who will be a check on the powerful to protect the rights of the powerless. And so if we say that we follow Jesus, then when we're participating in the political sphere, we're saying we're walking in the way of our master. He's our Lord, which means he gets to tell us what, what to, to do, do right? Not mm-hmm. your pastor who interprets his words, mm-hmm. not the person on television, but like you go to your Lord and say, I'm reading, you know, and you should wrestle with the biblical text. Mm-hmm. You should wrestle with it. And then you 
anyway, so I just, but I just think it's really important to recognize that because we believe in salvation by grace, that does not mean that we just get to, you know, should we send more so that grace abounds? No. But I think a lot of us have just been fed this cheap grace theological lie that says, since you don't have to earn your salvation, you can just be indifferent to the suffering of the powerless, and that's fine with God, and it is not. It is not. And saying that Jesus is the way has to, at least on some level, mean that for you, you're going to pattern your life after the values of Jesus. And I would say a good place to start is the Sermon on the Mount, because it is hard to spiritualize that away. And and so you have to wrestle with that. And if Jesus as the way for us as believers has nothing to do with the way we live our lives, then we have just been hoodwinked. Mm. Well, it, it seems to me that the, I'll say the problem with um, progressives and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats, is that um, each group has their list of what are real sins. Mm -hmm. And for those on the right, they tend to be um, personal morality issues. And abortion. Yes. And uh, for those on the left, they tend to be societal, systemic issues, uh, poverty and the like. And... I just think there needs to be a reconciling because uh, it's just too easy to say um, um, it's all about the systemic issues or it's all about the inter- or the personal sin. It's really about both. And I think Jesus leads us into dealing with both. Well, and I just say before we move on, I, I don't know if I've ever said this on this podcast before for oh. The tens of people who are listening, but if I read one more thing Uh-oh. about our current president restoring prayer to schools, I'm going to lose my ever loving mind. So let's just be clear there is no human authority, no political power that could ever remove prayer from any space or place on God's green earth because prayer is something and oh my authority on this is Jesus that any individual can do in the privacy of their hearts because prayer is a conversation that an individual has with God and so I understand that people might want there to be public prayer people might want there to be people in authority praying prayers and compelling students to listen or adopt a respectful posture to those prayers. And I would just say those are very different things. And I personally have a strong opinion about that. But even the law allows for, if my understanding of the law is correct, the law even allows and has always allowed for groups of students to get together to pray. Correct. What is prohibited is the principle or the classroom teacher saying, okay, now we're going to pray. And I remind folks, since I have a a child in school, um, that if my child's teacher is, let's say they are Jehovah's Witness, let's say they're a Mormon, let's say they are 
Um, well, let's be really Hindu. scary and say they're Muslim. Well, something <laughs> other than a follower of Jesus. I am super okay with them teaching math and science and literature, but I don't want them leading my child in prayer. I, I think it's unnecessary. I don't want them to do it. Um, well, I, I mean, I just am very clear about public prayer in public spaces that I I don't want other people I don't want people who I'm not choosing to tell my kid who Jesus is but I'm like but that's even a totally different conversation mm-hmm. I just want us as practicing disciples of Jesus Christ to acknowledge that no one can stop you from praying no one can stop anyone from praying mm-hmm. and prayer does not have to be um, observed by humans in order to be real, in yes. order to be powerful. And you to, don't have to say, everybody close your eyes and bow your heads. Right. Mm-hmm. And to right. the extent yeah. that we as believers have been drawn into this political fight, it just betrays, I mean, it just it reveals how little we believe in prayer, right? If we believe in prayer, we should be the first people to say, you wish you could pass a law that could stop me from praying in school. You Mm -hmm. wish you could pass a law that would stop a teacher from praying in school. You wish you could pass a law that would stop a principal from praying in school. Of course, I mean, we can pray without ceasing. That's what we believe. And I've had teachers say, I am praying for your child. Great. And I know they mean by that. when I'm away from school or during class when, you know, the class is doing other things, they are lifting up my child in prayer. Fantastic. What they don't mean is that they ask the whole class to bow their heads while they say a prayer. And I'm just saying, like, different people can have different opinions about whether an authority figure should do that, and I respect that. I'm just saying, to make a theological point, as Mm -hmm. Christians, every time the cultural political element tries to introduce that argument, we need to remind people that prayer is internal and is a personal dialogue between an individual and God. We need to understand what prayer is and say, hey, you don't get to turn this into a football in the culture war. Yeah, well, what's underneath that is the idea that American Christians are persecuted. And Mm -hmm. I've heard that, and I have to remind people, okay, you don't understand persecution. (laughs) Go to India. Go to To China. China. That's persecution. American Christians are disenfranchised. (laughs) We're out of our place of privilege. Um, uh, We're we're no longer seen as relevant. Whose fault is that? That's different than persecution. Well, and I... And so we're we're lamenting that favored status in the society. Well, and I think the other thing we need to recognize is American Christians are terrified that they might become persecuted. Mm -hmm. And so American Christians feel very afraid that if they do not hold political power, Mm -hmm. they will not be able to practice as Christians. And to that very real fear, I think we need to say, read your Bible, because... The Lord has always been able to work in persecuted communities and that, as the saying goes, the blood of the martyrs is the waters, you know. Is it the the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church or the blood of the martyrs is the something of the church? So, I mean, just this idea that we think that we can't be Christians Mm -hmm. if we ever came under the power of a hostile government. And that just betrays our lack of understanding, again, 
of the gospel. Mm-hmm. That no, we need... And of the biblical narrative itself. Correct. Correct. So, what are you preaching on? Are we already talked about what you're thinking about? I'm sorry. We've well, been, like all over the place today. Well, quickly, yes, we are all over the place. Uh, but quickly, I'm thinking about... Um, our congregations, the Grove and Derrida Church, in light of MLK Day, and you know, I thoroughly believe and understand that we must fight systemic racism. Yes, 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 all day, yes. But I also believe that our congregations matter, that what they do matter, that who they are as multi-ethnic Um, congregations of Jesus matters. They are family, people from different ethnicities made family in Jesus, and that matters. And I'm reminded that Jesus said that the kingdom is like a mustard seed, that it's it's something that's small and seems insignificant, but it grows to become something great. And I think what our congregations do and are doing and who they are can be seen not only by the world, but by the by the church itself, by the denomination, by the powers that be, as small and insignificant, and, well, invisible, and um, and and what we do matters. And I I remind myself of that because it's easy to, uh, because it's hard, and you want to be recognized, you want to be uh, in some sense applauded, and. Um, Affirmed. You want yeah, encouragement. Cheered on. I, yes. Encouragement would be the yes. Word. And um, when that doesn't happen, you you know you think, well, maybe maybe it doesn't matter, but it does matter. It well, does matter. And I think, I mean, part of what um, I believe, I mean, I think that God is a God of justice and of righteousness, and I don't have any faith in politics to achieve righteousness or justice. Really, I don't. That doesn't mean that I don't, I'm, I'm political. I mean, I, I think I'm not the kind of person who would say, well, I don't care about politics because I think you only say that if, you know, you're not being killed, <laughs> if your people aren't at risk, right? So I, I do care about politics. I do think that that political realm is one place to be faithful. But um, I, I just think that my greatest hope for addressing systemic racism and addressing justice and building a righteous community is is to change hearts and minds of people so that people want that. I was actually listening to a snippet of an interview with Brian Stevenson and one of the things that he says, which I think is true, maybe I'm not as optim- quite as optimistic as he is, but Brian Stevenson who wrote Just Mercy, who's the leader of the Equal Justice Initiative and um, the, the movie based on his one of his cases just came out. So um, he's having a very well-deserved moment. And one of the things he said is, you know, I he said, I used to say that getting people off death row was like being part of the Underground Railroad. And to draw attention to it would just increase the obstacles to the freedom work. But he said, in the last 10 years, I've, I've really had a change of heart. And the movie was part of it. He said, I really believe that if most people saw what I see day in and day out. If most people saw what I see, they they would feel the same way that I do. He said, I don't think I'm a moral exemplar. I don't think I'm some sort of hyper, you know, moral person. I think most of us want to live in a society of, of justice and righteousness. And it's because we don't see the systemic injustice that we pretend, you know, that we think it's not 
it's not there. It's not happening. And so he said, I want to raise visibility. And I do think what I, I don't know that I think, I think that fear is more powerful than people's desire for justice and righteousness. But mm. I think that what will change um, the country and the world is more people having their hearts set on fire with love of the Jesus of the gospels and more people feeling so loved and so affirmed and, and so sacred in their Christian identity that they become brave enough to want to live out the sermon on the Mount, even knowing that they'll live it out imperfectly, even knowing that they'll have to self accuse so many times, you know, I just think it is the Holy spirit that will change individuals that will change communities that will change so once again, the scripture is true. God has chosen the foolish things right. of the of the world to shame the wise. Correct. So in these small, Jesus-centered, spirit-filled communities of multi-ethnic people who are living out living living out the gospel, loving each other, the Lord is using that to transform society and the world. I mean, I just think we need more citizens of the kingdom of heaven living in the nations on earth and that when we become citizens of the kingdom of heaven we don't stop caring about our country of origin or about our neighbors we care even more and we care differently and we are able to prioritize the needs of the other over ourselves and we're able we're able to be courageous and brave in a way that doesn't require other people's destructions and i um on sunday i didn't read this but i um showed my kids in the children's sermon a picture of um the selma march and i i had a quote by vincent harding that i didn't read to the kids huh but i'll read it to you now because i love because it's what we're talking about um just about being a king a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and being wanting to fight for justice and righteousness but with the weapons of the spirit and not the weapons of the world and vincent harding was saying talking about the march and the movement in general is saying it was fighting choosing your own weapons rather than allowing yourself to be sucked into the weaponry of the opponent that you're struggling with we tried as much as possible we didn't have to work very hard on this because many black people in their wisdom there in the south saw what the kind of weapon of the kind of love and that romance with the gun and that militarism of the South had done to so many white Southerners that it had warped them and their values and their capacity to really be human. And one of the critical things that we felt we wanted to do was to find a way of struggle that everybody could participate in. You didn't have to be a big, strong, macho man to do it. You could be an 80-year-old grandmother. You could be a 12-year-old young woman. And you still operating from the center of your own being from that strength within you could stand up to the sheriff clerk. I mean, just mm, that idea of like, good. we want to be citizens of the kingdom. And that doesn't mean we become indifferent because we're waiting for Scotty to beam us up. But we're saying that we have access to unlimited power, to ultimate authority. We are completely free because the only thing we value is not at stake and we don't fear death. And we don't hate our enemies. And so, you know, the movement becomes unstoppable. And that is why that vision, A, I think is so attractive. I mean, people run towards that gospel if we can just, like, proclaim it purely and then create a community that imperfectly but sincerely Mm. is trying to live that out. 
that is transformative. And you don't have to be a wealthy congregation of 600 800, right. 9,000 members to do it. You don't have to have access to the city council. You don't have to have a congregation full of doctors and lawyers. I mean, that's the thing. Like in the movement, anybody can do it. In our churches, I think there are a lot of small, struggling, poor congregations of every ethnicity who think like, I want to do something for the kingdom of God, but I don't have enough power. I don't have enough influence. I don't have enough people. And then we don't understand the gospel because the gospel says we don't need anybody's permission and we don't need to wait. We just have to have, we have to have the wisdom to understand how the battle is really fought and the courage to say, I want to be part of that and I'm willing to pay the cost. Mm. That's good. So what are you preaching this Sunday? (laughs) Our guiding principle is um, we're called to be a ministry of hope in our neighborhood, blah, 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 everything we've been talking about all day. <laughs> so, it's all, yeah. So I'm preaching on, I'm talking because you're laughing, so I'm just going to fill the space and say um, we're preaching on Elisha and the, um, uh, I mean, it's close to what you were doing last week to mm. the to the oil that didn't run out and gathering all. I love all, that story. Yeah, and gathering all the empty vessels. Yes. And, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited for that. Excellent. Well, we're continuing in Matthew 14, this series called Reboot. Uh, This week, it's um, Jesus walking out to the disciples on the water and Peter also walking on the water. And I was studying the text yesterday and, uh, and, you know, I'm fairly conservative in my biblical of uh, 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 interpretation and uh, just kind of theological orientation, but um, I was surprised that the the question that came up in me, like I, that I had to wrestle with, was, "Do I believe this really happened? Mm-hmm. D- did this happen?" And so I just kind of sat back in my chair behind my desk and asked myself that question. And ultimately, I concluded yes mm-hmm. um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, Jesus' divinity. Jesus mm-hmm. is the divine son of God. Of mm-hmm. course, he walked on water. But something else that's more powerful to me, and that is we also believe that in um, the coming of Jesus, the new creation has broken into the current creation. And so a new creation overcomes this current creation uh, tainted by sin, right? So after Jesus' resurrection, he he both eats food and just appears in a room. Mm -hmm. Um, And one commentator says that when it comes to Peter, when it came to Peter, what Jesus did was in the moment of Peter's faith, or because or through Peter's faith, Jesus supernaturalized Peter. Mm-hmm. And that's what Jesus does for the church. Jesus supernaturalizes the church in the midst of the trials and troubles and storms of life. Don't avoid yeah. the storm. And, and it's, it's temporary. It's fleeting because of who we are and how we're wired, it doesn't last because our faith falters. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, the Lord comes to the church, uh, walks out to the church in the midst of the storm 
and supernaturalizes. And of course, in in many of those uh, gospel narratives, Peter represents the church, right? Mm -hmm. And Jesus supernaturalizes the church. And our faith falters. And we cry out to the Lord, and he saves us. Yeah. I I think that's a great question to wrestle with. And and now I'll probably wrestle with it. Because I was thinking about this too, that... And it was our conversation earlier when we were talking about hope on the run that, I mean, we, I think so often. And yes, in, we could talk while we, while we ran. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes yeah. more than others, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the, you know, intellectual concept of that content of that talk varied dramatically. But um, no, I was just thinking about like a lot of times in mainline Protestant churches, we have grown increasingly uncomfortable or distant from the idea of the supernatural because we're so satisfied with the natural. And what we want is just to kind of redeem or slightly improve what currently exists because we're basically stamping our approval on the culture. And so if, I mean, I think if you don't look, I mean, I like literature and I learn a lot through literature and and you could just say that all of this is metaphor and it isn't that there wouldn't be wisdom if that were so, but if you don't, believe in the supernatural if you dismiss that out of hand then you should go to brunch because it doesn't make any sense to be part of these communities and i get it like it's hard to to conceptualize that i mean it's it's hard to sort of imagine what that would be like and, and it is natural that as you think about these things you 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 have a doubt right and and again Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Certainty is the opposite of faith. But to say, if I don't actually believe that ultimate eternal reality is different, I mean, not not totally unrelated to, but is substantially different to the natural reality I experience now, and also supernatural and natural are entirely human designations, right? But if I don't believe that, then, then I have no hope because... I don't have any confidence or hope in humans or human culture. I do have hope in the mystery of how goodness exists in the world and how beauty exists in the world and the ways that you have these glimmers of being connected to God and being used by God and evidence of things that have happened in your own life that are more than you could have expected and the heartbreak of times when, you know, things prayers haven't been answered and tragic things have happened and you think the god i believe in has the power to have made this turn out differently and it didn't and Mm. i don't know why but i mean i believe in the supernatural i anticipate in the supernatural and if we don't then we can't be faithful because so much of what god calls us to do is to leverage the natural for the sake of of the supernatural. And if we don't believe in it, then sure, we're just going to go ahead and invest our treasure in our mutual funds and not pay very much attention as to how those profits are being raised. Because if we only believe in the natural, then we're just going to compromise. I think we said during the run, uh, something like, if you are powerful now, right, you don't look for the supernatural. If you have a sense of powerlessness now, your eyes and your heart, 
you're you're open Correct. to the supernatural. Which is why Jesus is saying it's so hard for a rich man to enter mm-hmm. into the kingdom of heaven. It's not that rich people are inherently less moral than poor people or that mm-hmm. poor people are inherently more more mm-hmm. moral than rich people. It's that rich people tend to have power and control in this kingdom mm-hmm. and they you don't want to give it up for what you can't see. You don't think you need. Yeah, or or you just you don't want to risk what you have mm-hmm. for what might be, even if that's better. But if you have nothing, then it is just easier to take a bet on Jesus, right? And so that's, I mean, that's just consistent with Scripture. And I think that's why it's just important to be willing to be uncomfortable as we practice our faith because if we refuse to consider any ideas that make us uncomfortable or be in any communities that make us uncomfortable or experience any worship that makes us uncomfortable then basically what they're saying we're saying is i worship the natural what i understand what i can accomplish and you know what i see and enjoy and i'm not willing to be led beyond my comfort zone into the abundance of God because the abundance of God is good but it is not comfortable and that's just I mean whatever Isaiah and Isaiah is a prophet and gets swept up into the throne room of God and it says whoa <laughs> I don't get me out of here yeah. this experience of the supernatural is supremely scary and uncomfortable and there's real pain involved and anyway so yeah I'm boy I think that's a really interesting way to enter into that whole concept of hope. And if we don't believe or are willing to wrestle with the idea of things that are beyond what we can know or see or touch or taste or control, then can we really have hope? Or is it just optimism? Mm. And there is a difference between There's hope. A- Optimism. Although that took me, the first time I heard that, I was like, what? <laughs> like I heard somebody, I think it was probably around this time of year, some civil rights leader saying like, oh, I'm not optimistic, but I am hopeful. And I was like, oh, what does that even mean? But optimistic means I think things as they are are probably going to work out. I am not optimistic, but I do have hope that things as they are are passing away and what is coming is of the Lord and it is good and it is loving and it is powerful. And we should stop talking because it's been a long, long time. So thank you for listening to us. In our defense, someone encouraged us to talk longer in our podcast. <laughs> so, um, And they pointed out that people can always turn it off and stop listening. So if you're still True. listening, True. Um, we hope that it has been a blessing to you. And if you want to find out more about... Um, Dorita, then Google Dorita Presbyterian Church in Charlotte and it will pop you over to their website and you should definitely listen to Yolando's sermons on the Podbean website. Look for Dorita Church Podcast. And if you want to know more about The Grove, it's thegrovecharlotte.org um, or on Instagram, The Grove Charlotte. Um, and if you want to hear messages at The Grove, and I liked the sermon last week, you can look at iTunes, The Grove Charlotte, and we are grateful to have this conversation with you guys. Thanks.